episode number 39, Lorenzo Savoini. And welcome back to the Title Block, a podcast about Canadian theater designers, their history, and their craft. I'm your host, Michael Cruz, and this week, this week, my friends, a two-hour conversation with Director of Design at Soul Pepper Theatre in Toronto, Lorenzo Savoini. This is such a great interview. Just when you think we had exhausted all conversation, it gets deep into Lorenzo's theory of design and its future in Canadian theatre, as well as the philosophy behind Soul, the Soul Pepper Academy and their success in integrating design into the creative process so well that it acts as inspiration for new stories. Once again, the show notes are extensive and will allow you to follow along when the names get a bit much. And, and if you go to the website, you can search the database of 39 episodes so far, uh, which is quite a lot. My goodness, it's been almost three years. Uh, you can search those, that database for particular names or shows. And I want to challenge you right now to go, uh, before you even start to listen to Lorenzo, to go to the links in the podcast. It may even be on your smartphone if you use apps like Stitcher or Podcasts, Pocket Casts like me. Go there and click on Support the Show at the top of the links list. This will bring you to the Patreon site where you can support each design episode with as little as $2 an episode. The show has some inherent costs, you can imagine, from mic rentals for the Bellows episodes to promotions, web hostings, web hostings, or web hosting, and travel. Not to mention the hours it takes to create each episode. I pay for this out of my own pocket, and if you are like me and love the kind of history we are uncovering about Canadian theatre design here at the Title Block, you'll want to support the show as well, I'm sure. Please click on the Patreon link and support the show. There are about 800 of you who listen to the show every month, and with your help, I can make that grow and collect more of Canadian theatre stories. And thank you so much to those who already support. Now, we're only up to around, get this, about $27 an episode. You know, not much. And uh, I'll need much more just to break even. So so please help us out today. Patreon.com forward slash the title block podcast. Now, if you use this show to teach your students about the history of theater design, let me know. Email me at the title block at gmail.com or drop us a message at our Facebook page or Twitter uh, at the title block CA. And now we go to the uh, to last May I sat down in the Soul Pepper Library in Toronto, Ontario for a conversation with designer Lorenzo Savoini. Lorenzo Savoini is a resident artist and the director of design at Soul Pepper Theatre in Toronto, where he works with new and emerging artists with the Soul Pepper Academy. He has worked at the Stratford Festival, Canadian Stage, Terrigan Theatre, Theatre Calgary, Belfry Theatre. Neptune Theatre, many more, and he joins me now at the Library of the Soul Pepper Theatre in Toronto. Lorenzo, welcome to the Title Block. Thank you. Phew, I got through that without making a mistake. It's awesome. Perfect. Uh, so tell me about your decision to go into theatre. You were born in Thornhill. I was born Ontario. in Thornhill, Ontario, suburbs of Toronto. Uh, I did not have a lot of theatre in my life. I think the only thing I remembered seeing was um, racing down the DVP minutes before curtain to see Peter Pan. And I was about nine or ten, and uh, not at all being taken by it. Uh, then in high school, I think I took a theater class because in grade ten because I heard it was easy credit, 
and it really opened my world. I started, I remember the first play I read was uh, David French, it was uh, Leaving Home, and that I could connect to. I really thought it was this, it was amazing to kind of, like, different than a movie, you didn't escape. It was something where it's like you were engaged with this, with these people, these characters, and in a deep way, and we studied that play, and so my respect for what theater was started to grow, um, and then we did a production of Our Town, and I auditioned, and I remember kind of, you know, because I was leaving to go to university, and I had a girlfriend, and I said, I understand George. I totally get him and what he's going with on with his family. And so they gave me, the, and I remember going out the night before my audition and thinking the costume would be really important before I even had any instinct for design. And I ran out to a mall and I bought wool pants with suspenders mm-hmm. and a kind of Henley shirt and kind of old, I had old shoes from my dad. And then, so I kind of dressed up and I got it and I didn't know anything about acting and I don't think it was very good. But that play, that play, Thornton Wilder's play is extraordinary and started to open my world in terms of classical text. And, um, and I think I loved the camaraderie of theater. I think I loved everybody getting together. I did one stage management uh, show where I did stage management on Your Good Man Charlie Brown or something. And so I knew I was hooked. I was also interested in architecture, and I was interested in possibly going to university for architecture. We had, in my high school, we had um, classes. We had, like, industrial arts classes where there was also design arts. There was, like, um, silk screening and catting. And so you did all these, like, little projects that gave you a taste of it, working with pneumatics. And so I never put together. I never knew because, again, we did Our Town, which doesn't have any set. And I never really connected that what set design was or theater design was. And I just knew theater to be something like it was an actor's medium. And uh, the last second, like I looked at, I I think I met an architect at a career day and he was so boring. (laughs) And I thought, oh my God, I don't, I don't think I want to do residential homes and focus on bathrooms or something. So I just had to convince my very traditional family that I was going to go to school for theater And uh, I think I convinced them that I'll just, I'll just, well, I'm going because then I'm going to go be a teacher. I'll just teach high school. And they, they kind of thought, okay, that's good. And uh, so I applied and I applied to York and I applied to Guelph and Waterloo. And I got in to all of them. Mm-hmm. But York, uh, I was a bit confused because it's like they wanted you to specialize very early mm-hmm. after your first year. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. So Guelph offered this really funky kind of hippie program, kind of like a bunch of communists, really. I love them. And they, uh, and it turned out to be this great program because you, you could audition for lots of things. You could direct, write, produce your own work with a group of people. There was like lots of opportunity for independent study Mm -hmm. where if you came with them with a project, they'll give you a credit for it. And, and so that proved really valuable in that I think I ended up I ended up going there and ended up really um, understanding theater in the broader scope. Yeah, that's interesting you say that because uh, I went to um, when I went to Ryerson, I knew exactly what I wanted to do, and so I, the idea of going to a more general program seemed like a waste of time for me. Sure. Like, why would you ever do that? These are programs we're going to train, and now that you say that, it makes so much sense to people who have a love of uh, a love of theater and, a, and an interest in it, but. 
haven't fig- haven't had the chance to figure out what yeah. the hell they want. Yeah. Um, and so uh, it makes so much sense to 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 design a program like that now to me. Like it just it just made total sense to me. What, what did you take? Yeah. From so it? Like, well, I remember when I when I got there, I I um you know you take all the intro stuff, intro to technical theater, intro to acting, and all the rest, and um. I remember I auditioned for, they had this like one act play festivals every semester and they were really popular. And I auditioned and I got in, I got a part in this show and it's weird. I thought, oh, I started getting parts in plays and I was like, I'm pretty sure I'm a terrible actor. (laughs) And, uh, but, but I did start to understand theater kind of from that perspective rather from a kind of decorating it from the outside and I was also interested in fine art. I was taking fine art courses. I was always a drawer my whole life. And uh, um, and I so I started taking electives, like fine art electives. And, and funny enough, so there's two kind of moments. One was being a carp on a show, doing intro to technical theater. You applied yourself. You did a certain amount of hours on a show. And the, I just like walked in the room. We were building the set. And when it was finally complete, I was like, I what am I looking at? It was a series of raked platforms with a very steep rake with a baby grand piano sitting on that rake and the, the, all the floor was covered in music pages. And it was very poetic and metaphorical and it was designed by Alan Watts um, who was a professor of design there. And I suddenly saw that uh, what I've learned others describe as sort of like a three-dimensional canvas. It was like more poetic and metaphorical and not just sort of like a movie set naturalism. So um, uh, it kind of just never see. So suddenly this notion of what set design was, it just suddenly came into view and became very tangible to me and something I felt like I would, I could apply myself to. And that coincided with picking up a magazine called Canadian Art, which is still published. And on the cover was a design, uh, Michael Levine. And I uh, read it and was introduced into, uh, into Michael Levine and his design work and his worlds. And I think at the time he just was really starting to, to do work with COC and had finished his kind of Shaw stint and Canadian stage and started, was moving into the opera world. And and it was amazing to hear him talk about theater design Mm -hmm. and which is, you know, why just our designers, young designers being exposed to the work that's going on in this country and being in conversation with other working designers is so important. But it, it in a way was a mentorship before I even met him. And it made me believe it was possible. It was like, there's a guy doing it, presumably making a living Mm -hmm. And he's he's got a he's got a methodology. He's he's doing this. So it allowed me to. It started to seem like a more viable, real potential career. Mm-hmm. So uh, sort of in the second half of my undergraduate, I focused much of my energy and time in design. And there's just not a lot of design courses there. It was mm-hmm. like design one, design two, and you were done. So I approached Alan Watts and said, "Would you mentor me?" I would like to, and so we created these elective courses where I, he'd give me, he'd play director. I'd pick a bunch of plays off the shelf that I wanted to design. I'd go home and I'd get credit for doing theoretical studio projects for various stuff. And um, as well as designing, I had a friend that was 
taking theater in Queens. Mm -hmm. And he was, Queens was like a bunch of group, uh, a big group of actors, directors that I met because my friend produced a show in town at a theater called The Baby Grand. Mm -hmm. And uh, an actor in that company was Daryl Cloran, Mm -hmm. who's a theater director who runs uh, Western Theater Canada Mm -hmm. now. And anyway, I got credit for designing show out in Kingston. So I would get on the train, I'd go out there, and I built the set, produced it, put it up. And uh, so I was, any chance I could to start figuring out how to do this, I, I took. Mm-hmm. When you were doing those uh, theoretical projects, did you, um, because it sounds like what's missing from that uh, experience is the technical director saying no. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> what were yeah, you doing? Absolutely. You and do I, that. That's right. And I didn't, I didn't have that. And that was a, that was... That hit me like a ton of bricks in my MFA. Uh, absolutely. No, I didn't have that. I mean, I designed, I think I had a final thesis production that I got to design there, um, as well as uh, we produced a production of House by Daniel McIver uh, with a director and an actor friend. We kind of did our own thing, and I designed the set and lights for that. And so there was a, I think by the time I was done there, maybe I had two, three actual shows under my belt. Um, one of which was, you know, a fully realized built set, but, and a director, uh, but like at the time I remember no real discussion or collaboration with the technical director. It was sort of like designed it. They're like, yeah, we could do that. Mm-hmm. We moved on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that collaboration, which is still like somewhat of a mystery because it's always feels like you're building like a bridge to one another mm-hmm. to understand each other and you get closer and you're like, why is your bridge so far from mine? How did that happen? Right. Looked like we were all lining up. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is such a key, key relationship, of course, for a designer to, and that, that you understand each other's process, that there's an understanding of the artistic approach mm-hmm. by the TD, but also the practical. Um, uh, I think that, you know, it's kind of really important to both have the artistic vision, but also the understanding of practical realities yeah. so that you can actually make sure that when you are having to compromise, you can do so in a way you can challenge the TD to make sure that they are not just taking the easy way out, but that are, from an engineering point of view, um, trying to bring your vision to life and to challenge them to say, you know, let's see... Let's see what we can do together. But anyway, yeah, not a lot of that at Guelph. It also seems like uh, that would be an obvious choice, though. Like if, if you have a student uh, outside of the design program that already exists who wants to do this, that would that'd be a great way of getting those chops, yeah. uh, of, of doing exactly what you yeah, did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it also seems like an opportunity as well to train the TD, the students who are who want to be Total carps and yeah. and and, uh, yeah. and technical directors yeah. and production managers. Yeah, and that's and that's in retrospect when I looked at that program, I think that that, that you know it wasn't a conservatory, right? Yeah. So I think in a conservatory environment, that's something you can really engage in. So that's why I needed a postgraduate. I just felt, first of all, my portfolio was not really anything worth selling, and I didn't feel confident. I didn't feel like I really knew how to work with anybody, mm-hmm. even a director. So. Um, it'd been a very kind of by myself in, in a studio kind of world. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> so I, I applied and strangely, you know, I wanted to stay in Canada. Mm-hmm. And there was, I think I focused in on U of Vic 
and UBC and Stitchbury last minute went on sabbatical. Mm -hmm. And so <laughs> it was all down to UBC and I think mm -hmm. they take like two people and I thought, oh my God, I'm not going to get in. And then I went out and I think I went out or I ended up on a phone conversation with Robert Gardner and next thing I knew I was, I was accepted. So I went out there. No, I did. I went out there and spoke with all of them to really make sure I had a face to face. And, um, and so UBC was this great opportunity to get a lot of practical experience. Mm -hmm. So now out of the studio in your head and into it was what you made it. It was like, we'll give you a lot of opportunities. There's a lot of shows that you could design here, but, um, it, there wasn't a lot of uh, close mentoring. There was just, when you need us, let us know. And so, but it gave me, you know, something like eight shows in a year or something. It was like really, and like opera, big shows, little shows. And um, so it gave me the opportunity to build a lot of confidence. Um, their shops, like I think they have union crew there, if I remember. So it's not like students are building your stuff. So I remember having to, you know, being at the start, being terrified to talk to them about how to build, how you want something built, to eventually feeling very confident having that collaboration with a carpenter and a TD. Um, uh, that's interesting. We haven't discussed a lot about the differences between a conservatory and a general program. And it seems, uh, do you think that it would be, I always wondered why people wanted to get their MFA, only because I didn't. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of the people I worked with didn't either. And they were working designers and they were mm -hmm. fully capable and, and seemed to have, have the chops. Uh, or get them eventually, right? Like, you know, your first couple of years out of out of school, you were really trying to figure out how to work in the real world. Um, but they tend to work out. So yeah. do you think that, um, I mean, I guess there's pros and cons to both. Had you gone to a national theater school um, uh, or I think probably even the York program is probably similar because you have to specialize so early. Uh, do you think that you would have made the choice to go to the MFA or, or was it really just a matter of getting experience? That no, I mean, I think that the general nature of my undergraduate did, did not, I don't think it readied me for entering the professional world. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, like I know for a fact that my MFA made a difference to my eventual segue to Stratford mm -hmm. in terms of just because the head of the assistant department had his MFA right, yeah. and a was appreciative of MFAs and what they were offering. Um, and that if you ever think down the line that you might want to teach, yeah. it's, it's, it's an important piece of paper and tool to have. Mm -hmm. um, but also I didn't, um, you know, I did a lot of reading and thinking on my own. Like I was, I used the MFA, I used the two years, not just for the applied mm -hmm. uh, work, but also to kind of try to, come to terms with like I was reading as much Peter Brook and is like I probably read more about directors mm -hmm. than I because there's no there's no books to read about designers designers aren't getting to write books about their methodology but but actually you know uh, I think it was Svoboda or somebody said that every designer should be 50% director and every director should be 50% designer and the more and more I started to read directors and their methodology um reading up on Simon McBurney and on Brooke and LaPage and so on. And I started to really connect. Like I, that really spoke to me. I started, not that I ever think wanted to be a director, but that I understood that designing was something that happens, um, is integrates with performance and is in time and is in conversation with the world and the play. Why even do this play? And in what context do we do this play? And these kind of big choices that, 
and questions that send you down a path of how are you going to tell that story, uh, I think I think in all my interests in directors, um, I think has that's how I think, I think now. And so I'm not always waiting to be prompted or um, I'm kind of trying to bring something to the table that we can then have a conversation about together. And so... I don't think I learned that from any of my programs. Mm-hmm. I think that was just independent study and passion and interest in whatever I was looking into. Uh, and I don't know. Like, I mean, I think we can – I try to point designers down those paths now in, in the program we have here. But, um, you know, every designer is going to be different and an MFA might be good for one person and not good for another person. And, and But what I think an MFA is about is it's not about – the job it's going to get you. It's going to be less about how the world sees you and it's more about the world inside you changing. So it's you go do this thing that for two years you selfishly are going to challenge yourself and how you see the theatre and your place in the theatre. And so it's just a, it's a personal two-year experience. But to have expectations that it um, suddenly everyone's going to see you in a different way. Like I don't think I've ever, except for that one Stratford interview, no one's ever asked or cared if I have an MFA. Yeah. 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 Great. And uh, tell me about Robert Gardner. You said he was one yeah. of your mentors out there. He know? was, yeah. Well, I, I was, he was a very exciting designer, really interesting aesthetic, um, very uh, theatrical and architectural. And he was doing opera and theater and kind of uh, a turn. And he was like trying to figure out a way to take overheads and put them in front of a source four and not melt them. Like right. at what level could I create my own custom photo gobo without spending the money? And he was, he was curious and I, and he challenged me very early with, you know, the best lesson I ever got from him was our first theoretical class project was, you know, I got a heartbreak house and he said, okay, I want you to just go away and do some sketches as if you're coming to a first meeting with a director. And of course I took the opportunity to like spend an entire weekend, like 48 hours doing these beautiful drawings, mm-hmm. these like pencil drawings with the light coming through the window ever so. Mm-hmm. And he sat down and he, we all had to present to each other and I presented my drawings and he came out with a black permanent marker and started drawing on it. And he started to just sketch and he said, yeah, but if you did something over here and my, I just, my eyes went bugged out and he said, oh, did that, did that freak you out that I did that to your ste- sketch? I said, yeah. Like what? He said, don't ever come to a first meeting with something that beautiful that you care about that much. It's not fair to a director. And since that day, my sketches, like I'm not even, like I do like uh, silly little thumbnails. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I do lots of storyboarding and thumbnailing that are mostly just drawings for me, not even something I always share with the director. But I don't, I don't, I don't over-articulate too early, mm-hmm. so to keep the conversation uh, open. And that, so that's he introduced me to this idea of collaboration and what it means to work with the director. Mm-hmm. So we got down that, got to have those conversations. And he was just a really, you know, he, right away he said, you know, that's a really good Lorenzo design. You know how to do a Lorenzo design. Now why don't you challenge yourself? And so he kind of got my number really early and kind of understood how to challenge me. And then after two years, uh, you know, he, he's, I've, I've never, you know, we've stayed briefly in contact here and there, especially he has been really great about sending me potential applicants for our academy. Mm-hmm. But, um, 
but I left Vancouver, so right. it was. But he he was always uh, really, really, really great to me, and I very appreciative. That's terrific. When was the first time you met uh, Michael Levine in person? Yeah, I met Michael. So I was uh, I just started at Stratford, or I was a couple of years in assisting at Stratford, and um, someone said, you know, you should assist Michael, and I said, oh, I'd love to assist Michael. I've sent him my resume and never heard anything back, and. Um, and then he, I gave him a call. Someone said, oh, no, just give him a call. He's looking for an assistant. And he said, yeah, come in. Well, I'll show me your work. And I had already – so I was in like my second or third season. I think second season in assisting at Stratford. And I was it was like December and I had to start up again in January. And I walked in his studio just thinking we're going to have a conversation maybe in a year or something. And we did. We had a talk. And I walked in his studio and he had like, you know, eight or ten – half-inch models around the room for projects going on over the next two to five years, Mm -hmm. all of which, each one taking me through, like my heart was skipping beats. I was Mm -hmm. kind of felt like this is where I want to be inside this man's brain in this room. And he's, Michael, he's extremely generous um, and supportive and said, you know, great. Like, why don't you start next week if you want? And I just said, sure. (laughs) <laughs> like completely forgetting that I'm supposed to do a six-month stint. Uh, so I said, sure, I'll see you next week. And I left and I was like, got in the car. I was like, oh, my God. So I went to Stratford and I said, listen, this opportunity came up. And they have been they were really kind. They gave me a bit of sabbatical in my assisting mm-hmm. to go work with him. And I did. So I did kind of like an initial three weeks. And then when I was let out for the summer from Stratford, I did a whole, I think, two or three months with him mm-hmm. where we tried to, we did the ring cycle. Yeah. So it was me, Cami, I think there was another assistant in there, and we built models forever. And it was good grasshopper work. It was like, like glue this pin on the back of this button head to make a mini tiny light. <laughs> Do that about 300 times. Right. And that would take like three days. And then he'd say, make them a little bigger this time. So then you'd do that. So this extraordinary thing he had, like, you know, I don't know, the, like the budget of those models was probably more than a lot of sets I do. So, yeah. yeah. Um, now tell me about your, your so Stratford, you, you get an interview at Stratford. Yeah, uh, so I came back of- to Toronto. I, you know, left UBC and was like, oh, maybe I'll stick around Vancouver. Realized very quickly, it's a very tiny community, wonderful people, but they're not very interested in someone saying, I'm from Toronto, can I work here? You know, I sort of, protecting their own and it just felt like very not a lot of doors to get into not a lot of theater companies so I came back I knew I wanted to work at Stratford one day and you know I think it's important to know like I waited for like a year at least year and a half and hooked up with Daryl Cloran out of the blue that guy that I did that show at Kingston with that he acted in kind of got to know him then calls me at the blue says hey I'm a director now I want to work for free <laughs> and I uh, designed shows that I built in Toronto and did these projects with actors now who were kind of like just starting off then who are now seasoned actors in the city and we all were working for nothing and doing a lot of really hard independent projects that take a lot of your time and I was doing them like painting through the night so then I go to my waitering job in the day and sort of doing that kind of world for a year and feeling like I don't think I can keep this up Mm -hmm. and Stratford I got an interview but it didn't amount to anything and then months later I get this call, an assistant quit. Mm-hmm. We need you to start tomorrow mm-hmm. if you want it. And it was like Sound of Music. Rory, you're going to meet Rory Murchison, UK designer at this hotel. A car will pick you up. 
It's like, what? A car picked me up, drove me to a hotel where drinks were paid for. Mm -hmm. We then went to a dinner at the director's house. And then I was in the car, drove us back at midnight to Stratford, where I was put up at a hotel. Like, this was alien to me. (laughs) And then I spent the week working at Stratford, burning the midnight oil in like four feet of snow that never stopped coming down. And in that beautiful design office overlooking the river, uh, I remember... It was just, it was romantic. It was this extraordinary, I, I thought, I can't believe, I'm pinching myself, I can't believe this is happening and working to a deadline of getting these draftings done in time and ending up somehow getting lost as you can so easily in that building and ending up at like trying to get out of the building at 11 p.m. and ending up on stage with the ghost light mm-hmm. and just sort of, you know, taking your breath away and feeling a part suddenly realizing something, and I, I always knew about Stratford, but suddenly feeling like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm part of that big, giant story. I'm a, a piece of sand in it, but it's like, wow, I'm here, and I'm... And then, uh, so that, I assisted on that production, which led to, like, a lot of back-to-back assisting. Um, um, they just, things went well, and there was, like, a group of us. There was, like, actually, like, Michael G. and Francesco, who you interviewed, Dana Osborne, there was a series of us that started to get a lot of assistant work. And then the opportunity came. Um, my, um, Richard Minette opened a new theater, opened the new studio theater. And he wanted it to be for the next generation. He wanted young people to be working there. And I had assisted on his production. So it was just right place, right time. And he, he offered me they did six new one-act plays. And he's like, you'll design the set for all six. And it was, like, there was no budget. It was supposed to be all pulled from stock. But it was six directors, established directors, who I've never met before, who I now have a working relationship with. Like, you can't. That's an amazing, lucky opportunity mm-hmm. because I've gone on to continue to work with some of those directors. So every project gets you the next project. And... Um, so, so that so that led to then the fall like year after year transitioning. I think where there was a point where I was assisting and designing, um, and then they finally said you can't be an assistant anymore. And uh, then I just started to really commit to f- now freelancing. Mm-hmm. So I did a show there a year and would re- go out to the regionals and started to get work elsewhere, mm-hmm. um, and. Year after year, it was like I was working a lot with Richard, designing his shows, but I also had a really, you know, I I feel like for me, there was this production of the um, Time Out of Athens that I did with Stephen Mumet's debut as a director, I think. And that seemed to be something that people responded well to. And uh, suddenly people took interest and started asking me to do other things. Um, And then that led to a couple more shows there. Uh, So I kind of five years in total. And then... Uh, and then, you know, as I mentioned, like, it's, it's amazing. You get so used to that environment mm-hmm. and it becomes normal. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I started to become very interested in other things. And that kind of collided with also not being asked back. Mm-hmm. Suddenly there was a season I didn't get an offer. And I would be lying if, you know, suddenly your world implodes yeah. and you're like, oh, no. Tell me about you. We spoke about earlier in the pre-interview about, um, about the idea the old, the older idea in Stratford where 
the, the way to get work there, to work, the way to establish yourself as an artist, as Trafford, was to start as an apprentice. Mm-hmm. And that led to, yeah. like we have, I've spoken to so many people um, <clears throat> on the podcast about people who worked in the 70s yeah. and probably up until the early 80s who started there and then they continued on. Yeah, when I got there, I became very aware of this kind of legacy, this kind of renaissance structure of apprenticeships that went from Des, uh, or from Tanya to Des and down. And, uh, and that's Tanya Moisevich, right? Correct, yeah. yeah. And Desmond Healy. And then um, there's a whole bunch of designers that in the 80s, you know, and then somewhere in the 90s, I guess it sort of stopped this kind of passing on the torch. And it became very much about, you know, New York designers started to come up and it was like, do their summer stock show with us. And jobs were, you know, a lot of the directors just wanted the same designers or teams stuck together. And there was no nurturing of the next generation. And I think that there was a stint there for a while that that wasn't happening. So it seemed that being an assistant started to pin you as somebody that, I know this is true for assistant directors there as well, as, you know, someone who can help facilitate the process and help execute it. But who really wants the... The you know it's not glamorous to, to you don't want an assistant designer designing your show if you're a director you want you want somebody who's established or seemingly established so but the assistant design program like what assistants do there is extraordinary and what they're respond like they really like if they left at least when I was there like the show would fall apart right. they are m- like an important integral part of driving the show. And that has been the main takeaway skill that I still try to drive home today with the younger students is that, you know, yes, the idea is the first and foremost the important thing. But then if you can't drive a show, if you can't production manage your own show through the organization, it won't matter. Like your your ideas will stop dead and you will compromise your way to, to, to being disappointed. So... Um, that really taught an extraordinary, uh, it forced you to become a strong communicator and well-organized and, uh, and rigorous in terms of um, how to, the process of execution. Uh, great. But it didn't mean you still couldn't see the direct line, the journey from gaining those skills and then being able to get a show. And it really was the opening of the studio theater that prompted, and, and I'll say this about Richard, like as complicated as a human being as he was, and we all are, he was incredibly supportive of the younger generation and believed in many conversations where he believed in that and in, in nurturing and, and giving them a, a stage. And so, and so he gave me that opportunity and it, and it, so it was, it was a, it was sort of the first big opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, uh, I'd say now, I don't know where they're at now. I know that it's, it's still, I don't see a lot of, so like me, Michael, Jim Francesco and Dana Osborne of my generation there seem to be the ones that graduated into, like, were given the opportunity through Richard to, uh, to, to be brought along and, since then, I know there's been a kind of frustration, like we were the last ones, and that there hasn't been a lot of opportunity in that regard. Um, so, and you know, it's incredibly important. It's incredibly important that that 
the thing that I realized sitting in that room for five years and being in conversation with all kinds of designers was it's not even like the conversations about design. It's like the wonderful conversations about all sorts of things, sports, life, art, that aren't directly related, that you realize how important it is to have a community and that actors really take it for granted because it's the conversation is there they're always in a group in conversation about something. Yeah. And, and so, and so it was, it was like this great place, you know, it's just, I started to get to a point where I felt like the work we were doing and, and the traditional, fairly traditional, um, uh, forms in which Stratford was working in at the time, like the expectations around the work. I just like, I'm not a, I don't know how to do an Elizabethan costume. I'm not interested in it at all. There's nothing wrong with it. I get it. Mm-hmm. But I just, it's not, when I approach a show or a piece of Shakespeare, it's like what period should it be in is not a question. It's not the first question I ask. Mm-hmm. And 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 I want it to feel like I personally was interested in something that like, I just somehow wanted the work to speak to now and connect to the world now and that somehow for me I was feeling a bit like I was I was pumping at work and it was great but it wasn't somehow like feeding this thing where I wanted to explore new ways of designing messing with the formula of how we design and changing the variables and so that led to a pretty easy segue away from Stratford into other communities and places to work yeah that's terrific. Now, I, that's a that's an excellent segue to go to the next step. But I really want to talk about the process in Stratford mm-hmm. that you witnessed and the formula. You spoke about before about the formula for production mm-hmm. uh, and 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 mm-hmm. the need to production manage your design through mm-hmm. the through the process. So, t- talk tell me, just give me a sketch of how it works down there and what what are the sure. hurdles you have to overcome well, as I an think, assistant? Yeah. Well, I mean, as an assistant and a designer, I think the big key challenge is and this is true of Shaw too, is just how early designs have to be in. Yeah. So your preliminaries are in like a year, almost a year in advance. And so actors are coming into a room and uh, are engaging with something and dealing with costumes. Like it's all been predetermined and now we're just going to fit you into that mold and we'll keep moving forward telling story. And there's, again, like there's a reality around that and, the, and, uh, and I get it that we need you know, we need to start building or there simply won't be a set on stage mm-hmm. in time. But that just, uh, so there are wonderful benefits to that, which is that then you can, if, you know, especially with musicals, big giant scenic expressions can happen because mm-hmm. you have the time, you take the early time to build it and execute it. The compromise to that is that you know exactly what you're going to get. It's going to look exactly like you imagined it would. Mm-hmm. And, and... Uh, I've come to appreciate accidents or come to appreciate like roads taking left turns during the process and sending you in new directions um, and being and the kind of uh, uh, degree of risk in that, but that there's also a responding to the rehearsal hall and responding to a, like if a good idea comes up, it's a how do you say no to it? And if it came from an actor or an assistant director or like how, like um, that's fine. And let's just all work as a kind of organism together. And that, that the, the hierarchical structure 
the uh, was very, very defined. So it was a very director-driven process at Stratford, and everyone's looking to the director to make decisions and give us information so that we can now do our jobs. And so that structure defines the form, defines the, the, the kinds of work that's going to be produced. And I know there are, you know, I feel and see now like some really wonderful directors coming in, Chris Abraham, and they're they inevitably are going to challenge both meet and challenge that process, and that's exciting to me. Um, and uh, uh, the 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 other big the rep there is so massive, so massive, mm-hmm. and that the amount of departments that exist, mm-hmm. uh, even especially in wardrobe, the scope of it as an assistant is at the start extremely daunting, mm-hmm. and uh, I always use like the quarterback analogy where it's like your first season you get sacked so quickly <laughs> and you feel like from saying hut there was no time to after like two years you feel like you're in that pocket for like a day and everything slows down and you so so then you're able to really think on your feet and make decisions because everything kind of slows down around you a little bit um and so really designers uh, come to because their residency is so long there. That's the other thing is that like costume designers are there for a long time, but sometimes designers take a show they're not available as much, and and the assistant designers can help mm-hmm. so they can be there. So I worked on I assisted on a show where this American designer I think came up like a total of three weekends or something <laughs> the entire process, and uh, and I really drove the execution and and. You know, I worked with Deborah Hansen, which was I, I really enjoyed because Deborah is an extremely busy, extremely talented, extremely busy designer working in all kinds of forms, mm-hmm. film and theater. And so she would come in and say, you know, I kind of want, kind of want this light, this street lamp, and she would do this crazy little sketch, and I would take that thumbnail sketch, and it was such a great task as an assistant to now go right. So this scribble. I have to now go research 19th century street lamps in London mm-hmm. and kind of take her, her drawing, her sketch, find an equivalent, mm-hmm. and then draft that equivalent right. to scale. And then you do that and you'd show her and then she'd make adjustments. But it was very quick interaction. Mm-hmm. And so you had to really run with the ball. You had to like make choices yeah. for them, but thinking as them. So understanding their aesthetic and their taste and never just simply doing what you want to do. Yeah. And that's Cami. I know he sp- speaks to me about assisting and she still assists Michael. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's an, it's an, I highly recommend it. Like it's an amazing thing to turn off one side of your brain mm-hmm. and turn off the other where your job is to bring to life someone else's aesthetic mm-hmm. is really great learning experience. Yeah. Uh, especially in, as a, in a collaborative process like theater where you're even as a designer you have to do that if somebody has a very strong idea your job is to execute that idea right totally like yeah you can't you can't let your ego interfere with that yeah um, absolutely that's great thank you so the the now finally the segue you mm-hmm. leave strap you leave the mm-hmm. the safety and security of mm-hmm. hundreds of people <laughs> to execute your design mm-hmm. into the world where did you go after so pa- or, uh, yeah after, so i, uh, I did Stratford? um i did did about six months of just, you know, I had shows that I had lined up and I was GCTC and I think throughout Neptune and kind of working around. And I got a call, I got a call from, and I was working, I should say, with this theater company that I became a, like a member of called Theaterfront. And it was run by Daryl Cloran, 
who I've mentioned before, and he's he became an extremely loyal collaborator who, when I worked for free for him when I was 25, you know, still to this day, even though he knows I'm not available, almost every year still goes, I know you're going to say no, but do you want to design this show? And I am very grateful for that. And uh, um, so we were doing a lot of new, we shifted the theater front mandate from doing kind of finding a really exciting script that gives everybody a chance to do something to writing new Canadian work and doing international collaborations. So Daryl and his acting gang went out to Sarajevo and wrote a play with some young Sarajevo actors about, um, they created a piece that was um, about both Canada and post uh, Civil War Sarajevo and uh, um, called the Sarajevo, uh, called uh, The Return Sarajevo Project, which got eventually is published and it's a beautiful piece. Um, and so I was working with them as well. I remember doing, developing from scratch, like working from the beginnings in a workshop of a new piece called Ubuntu, which was a collaboration with South, uh, South um, Cape Town, Cape Town artists. And so again, I didn't go out with them, but they went out and started a writing retreat with some Cape Town artists. And then we brought them back to then apply some design into a workshop uh, at some Tarragon rehearsal hall. And that all felt like it was really great to be in a room while something's being written and start saying, well, what if, what if we, we do this standing up and you're, it's like you're, you're lying in bed, but we're doing it up against the wall and we'll invert you. We'll invert your perspective on this and it'll feel more dreamlike. And someone's saying, okay, let's try that. And we do it. And we tr started to trial and error and it was so bad. Mm -hmm. It was like, oh my God, that looks terrible. Okay, wait, let's get a little light. Okay, let's get a pillow. What if we get a pillow? And suddenly it's like, oh, look at that really interesting, you know, Lepagian <laughs> image of, of playing with perspective. And I really enjoyed being in the room with the actors and um, being part of that in a sense, it's writing. It's like you're writing. So now the scene, the stage directions are such that so-and-so lies inverted, you know. So it's suddenly it's you're, you're writing the scene, shaping the f expression, the form of the piece. And then I get, and so I was doing work like that, and I got a call from Claire Sakaki, producer at Soul Pepper, saying we're starting this academy. It's a training program. We're not entirely sure what it is for the designer and the director and the writer, but we want seven actors, a designer, a director, and a writer. Would you be interested in auditioning? It's an audition process. And I said, you know, okay, I'm interested in coming in and learning about it. And to be honest, they didn't have somebody on staff or they didn't know. They they used Michael Levine as a, as a somebody they consult with as to what, this, what the designer could be doing in the program. And... I then spoke to Michael Levine about it because one of the key uh, teachers in the program was Laszlo Martin, who directed a lot of the Chekhovs at Soul Pepper, the successful productions of, of uh, Uncle Vanya and so uh, Platonov. So um, it kind of all there was all these things that kind of culminated, and it was so it was like I saw Uncle Vanya, which blew my mind. I'd never seen Chekhov done that way. It was both like the, there's like. Someone had acid-washed jeans on, uh, but then someone also seemed like they could be from the late 1800s, maybe, that where the period was not important, that the costumes were speaking to character. And the world was so, it, the design was so perfect for Chekhov. 
And I got it. It was Michael Levine's design. And, and then I understood to talk to Michael about it. And he said, yeah, with Laszlo, you get in the room and you start to build the costumes with the actors. So you start to bring in options, things to play with. You then he would give each actor $20 and said, we'll go, go to Value Village and come back with some things. I think Michael actually bought, he tells a story, I think, of like buying clothes from homeless person or some things and just saying and then bringing it all in the room and playing and building the costumes out of the rehearsal process this only works of course if you have more than three weeks of rehearsal which is the average rehearsal process so the average rehearsal process at soul pepper is like six weeks and if you're last low it's like could be eight weeks so this is a very european model and i started to understand that in a way that i never knew before the european model quote versus North American model and started becoming, oh, I'm going to start investigating that. So through Michael, in conversations with Albert as well, and I started to understand what this academy could be. And my wife, who's an actor, Sarah Wilson, uh, who's my girlfriend at the time, she auditioned as well. And she got in. And I got in. So it became this opportunity to work together for two years, actually, and get paid to train, because that's one of the defining important factors in the program is they say don't you will not have to worry while you train we're going to take the worry away but as I you know the big worry was parking that part of your brain as a designer you develop which is like what it means to be freelance and putting that on hold for two years scared me and so I think I accepted but then I kind of quit twice. I had kind of panic attacks and said, Albert, you know, thanks. Actually, I don't think I can do this. And he'd pull me in and we'd sit down and talk about it. And he was, you know, he would give me hours to just kind of go through it. And he would, you know, say, you know, try to imagine, think outside the confines of like the way it's always been and imagine it, you could define a new career for a designer. And, and it sort of felt like, like it was in a big experiment and they knew that. And so I went in and my first experience in doing it was three or four months with, or three months with Laszlo Martin. And I realized from that day, I, I, I thought I knew how to read a play and I didn't. And Laszlo, it was very much, you got on your feet, you acted scenes and you really started to understand something like Chekhov. You, know, you do these amazing improvs where it was, you know, um, contemporary improvs where it's you and someone else and sort of it becomes an analogy or a metaphor for the scene you're in. So you participate in this. But also being up there and having him direct me with the environment, with the sort of, you know, water, stage left, something, carpet. And he's like, now you pick up the carpet, you wrap it around your face. And be like wrapping it around my body while I'm screaming this monologue, thinking what a good direction that is. That is such a good thing. And so I started to kind of look at these plays with Laszlo is like you're trying to solve scenes. You're trying to solve moments for certain moments to kind of come alive and unlock for actors on stage. And then from working outside of that, like what does that scene need? Where does it need to be? What room does it need to be in? Let's take it out of the context. Let's put it in a shower. Like let's start to give the scene something that these contemporary actors here and now need to unlock it and solve it. And then you can start to take all of these approaches to scenes and look how you can kind of contextualize them within a f visual framework that is the design for the show. Mm -hmm. But it is more of an inside-out process as opposed to sitting in your studio reading a play, 
meeting with the director going, what do we want to do? It's a completely different process. So, um, so Laszlo has become a very important mentor and colleague for me. I know for many in this Soul Pepper building, he's sort of the found, he, he's, he's defined the pedagogy, I think, and which has evolved and grown through the academy. So I did the academy, I did the academy for two years, which was during my, it's just now the academy after five installments looks very different. But at the time, it was me getting opportunity to design a bunch of shows at Soul Pepper, exposing my work to Toronto, while also being in a studio and doing movement, doing dance, doing all these, uh, uh, and devising. So we would start to learn, figure out how to get in a room with a picture, with a photo, and say, okay, everybody, we're all equal artists and collaborators in this room. No one, think outside the boundaries of your discipline. And from this picture, let's let's create a five-minute piece of theater. Now let's create a 20-minute piece of theater. Now let's – we ended up going down this road of investigating war journalists mm-hmm. that came out of a monologue writing session that we all did. And I think my monologue was about this war journalist and war photographer. And that somehow we ended up expanding on that and decided to put our thesis – production and our energy into writing a new Canadian play about a Canadian war photographer. And as this company can do, what resources do you need? And I said, well, you know, we were like, we need to engage with a real war photographer. And we met with one who then gave us her photos as like something we can use Mm -hmm. and engaged with us in an intimate conversation about the world and about the process and about Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And so we were interested in challenging the company to tell a contemporary story. Mm-hmm. Um, but exploring themes that, are, of course, are, you know, classical, mm-hmm. like war mm-hmm. and um, love and death and all the rest. But, but seriously just uh, doing a contemporary play for the company's first time. Mm-hmm. And uh, we did that. We wrote a play. We devised it. We created it kind of from scratch. And, uh, you know... It was an exercise, and and uh, now what we're starting to see happen are these acad- not in our academy, but the next academies. Their exercises have turned into full fledged productions mm-hmm. that we now have been like successful and are part of our repertoire. Mm-hmm. So the academy is starting to define process and uh, and how we want to work, and so we're starting to challenge the traditional aspects of this company, who need shows to fit within a particular structure and we're saying sometimes we say okay meet us halfway we want to challenge that mm-hmm. so we're gonna so you know this eventually all leads to a production of of human bondage that i did two or three years ago where halbert and i went into the rehearsal hall and this first time we've tried this which is like let's go in with a set of rules. The script is written like a movie. Mm-hmm. It's a brand new version of the Somerset, uh, Somerset Mom mm-hmm. wrote of Human Bondage. Mm-hmm. Vern Thiessen adapted it into a play that has like 75 scenes and locations, <laughs> which we in the workshop said keep going in that direction because it actually forces you to think theatrically. Mm-hmm. And we went into the room with uh, an 18 a 16 by 16 high gloss square floor mm-hmm. that the lead character was never allowed to leave. Mm-hmm. 
everyone else would always be present in chairs and all the things that they need, props, instruments, everything, would be in the room. All the furniture listed in the stage directions would be in the room and then we will we will all begin this process together mm-hmm. and we will all as an ensemble figure out how to tell this story mm-hmm. because there are some impossible design ideas that I said, you know, Albert, I could sit in my studio here and come up with seven different big complicated versions of the way those paintings are supposed to be destroyed. Or we can get in a room with a very interesting group of actors and start to play around. Mm-hmm. So Albert created this idea of the playground, mm-hmm. which is that, first half of every rehearsal was like three hours of playground where I could say, okay, so let's take the, 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 the destruction of the pictures, the paintings moment. We're going to break up into groups of four. Mm-hmm. Everyone's going to come up with their version and we're all going to come back and show and tell. Mm-hmm. And so we did this. It was a form of devising. So, but what we've created is a group of actors that have been doing this now through the academy for a number of number of years and who can think like designers mm-hmm. and so so you're developing a community of multidisciplinary artists mm-hmm. and so I'm excited to get into room with Gregory Press and Raquel Duffy and kind of say hey guys uh, I don't completely know how to solve this but here's I think it'll be more interesting if we do it together mm-hmm. I'm not saying we do this for every show here we do this on occasion when the work itself wants it yeah. when it sort of makes sense but out of that I can say that you know became a form of storytelling for us that kind of, oh, now we reference it as like, should we do that? Should we do the next show like bondage style, of human bondage style where we get in a room? And the company, the, the produ- more importantly, the production department now understands that process. Mm-hmm. They understand that it is about late execution. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so we have to structure the shop and everybody that's facilitating it. Now we can't do four of those. We can't do four bondages at once, mm-hmm. but we can have one while three other ones are more traditional. Mm-hmm. Traditional. So, so we're, we're basically that that the, the I feel like what the academy's done has started to create individuals that are challenging how not just the kind of theater, but how we go about making theater mm-hmm. and the and challenging form and. Uh, Basically, Albert's wanting to build a community of artists that can constantly feel like they have a home to keep doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's getting harder for me, like the occasion when I would go back to freelance and you go back to like, you're going to do the show in the same way, like in a traditional way and you go, it's great, but it's, it, um, it's now getting to the point, it's just a, uh, it's more interest. It's I'm finding it more challenging year after year, and committing myself exclusively here right now. So, so and then to come full, I guess, all the way around and realize that now, after sort of five academies, ten years of academy, that now I'm running the program. So it now can have a proper curriculum, and kind of train designers in a way that um, is kind of postgraduate. Uh, and is trying to develop them as artists and and how to create a designer that comes to the table with a really strong point of view on the theater mm-hmm. and how they want to use the theater mm-hmm. and the stage and not just um, not just aesthetics but but actual 
what we would, I think, call directorial vision of how they want to use the theater that to kind of try to instill that kind of responsibility in a designer's voice as well. Mm-hmm. So that when they engage with the director, it's a, it's a much more complex, sophisticated conversation rather than where do you want to go with this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It also seems that the, uh, I have a lot of discussions uh, mostly because I'm interested in it, and I think it, it's relevant to working artists today as well, that theater has some challenges to continue to be relevant to society and to even each other in the community, in the artistic community. Uh, and it seems like art, um, uh, the way that you describe the academy and the way that you're working here at Soul Pepper seems to be uh, a way to make, to allow the process to evolve in a way that adapts to different expectations of theater, both as a creator and as an uh, uh, observer. Um, Absolutely. And so it sounds, like really, it sounds like a really optimistic way about to go about theater. It is, and it's extremely challenging to our production department because what they want, of course, like you want to be able to pin things down. Yeah. So for a TD here, it's like things are kind of like constantly, you know, wily. They just keep it's like morphing. And you're like, ah, can't we just do a show the same way each time? And, and... Um, uh, and some directors come, who come work here, absolutely. Like we do get a lot of traditional process, prelims, finals, and everything kind of goes as you would. And that's great. In certain plays, like you're not, there's no reason to do a playground on Odd Couple. <laughs> like yeah, exactly. it, that play is is solvable in the studio. And but for example, um, d- d- you know Diego Metamoros, uh, you know one of my favorite actors in the whole world. You know, comes up to me and says, you know, I'm like really passionate about John Cage. Do you know John Cage? I'm like, I sort of know John Cage. He said, well, why don't you investigate John Cage? Because I'm really into him and his relationship to Zen Buddhism. And I'm also interested in apes. I'm interested in apes in confined spaces and how they exist and to study them. And I said, okay, that's interesting. So then he, and then so I went away and investigated John Cage for a couple of weeks on my own, came very excited about his process of chants and how he writes, compose, he used to compose music through chi and um, his relationship and process, uh, practice of Zen Buddhism. So his favorite sounds, his favorite, most pure sound he said in the world is traffic mm-hmm. because you never know what's, something is going to happen mm-hmm. that's going to cause somebody to have to honk their horn. Mm-hmm. So, but these things are undetermined, like you're not, they're unplanned. Mm-hmm. They're completely by chance, and then you create. So every time you put your ear out the window, the music is original mm-hmm. and responding to human beings existing mm-hmm. in space. So, so he understood time and space in this really, really interesting way. And so I became very uh, suddenly went back to Diego. And I said, you know, this is blowing my mind. I this idea, this methodology of chance. I think we should apply that to the process of, of making a piece of theater. And he said, okay, that's really great. And we went to the zoo. So then we got Richard Farron because he also wanted to work with a sound designer. So he was interested in what happens if I try to create a piece with just designers, mm-hmm. at least to start. So the three of us, myself, Diego Morris, and Richard Farron, got in a car and we spent the day at the zoo, mm-hmm. kind of surreal day, and looking at apes and studying them and talking about them. And then it led me, you know, so the idea for Diego was that interesting relationship between the animal and the cage. Mm-hmm. John Cage and his music mm-hmm. and structure. And then I became, we started talking more and more, talking about the relationship of society and how we put ourselves in, you know, existing in, in structures that allow us to exist, to kind of make our lives easier, but uh, 
are confining. Mm-hmm. And so right away we saw a kind of subject matter to go into a room with. Mm-hmm. So we're going into a room now, hopefully this year, sometime if we can all get our schedules together, where we're going in with a subject matter. And uh, I've decided to build a plexiglass, 10 by 10 plexiglass, 10 foot tall, 10 by 10 mm-hmm. cube that Diego will be in. Mm-hmm. So that's a variable. There's a parameter. Bang. That's determined. Mm-hmm. The why doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's obvious, mm-hmm. but it's also what it needs to mean and how it will function is to be determined. Right. And then you go in with a subject matter. Farron comes in with a particular interest to challenge uh, an audience's sense of perception mm-hmm. of what that, in other words, we're, we're going to challenge how an audience exists in a room, walks around the cube. Maybe they'll end up in the cube and he'll be outside the cube. We don't know. We don't know how much audience. So we're going in a room with a methodology and not a play. And we're going to write the play as we go along in time exploring chance. So we're going to take what happens when this and this come in contact with each other and make meaning. That the meaning, the idea, the story is kind of will unveil itself and can it change from night to night? So we're going in with a lot of questions. Soul Pepper in its insanity has funded this. <laughs> so they've given us room because they, I think, believe in the three people that are going to go do this. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I just, I can't get that anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I can do that and also do a uh, big musical or, you know, do something traditional is kind of ideal and that now you know what I want to do what I want to do is like take though that that exists for many designers so Mm -hmm. Ken McKenzie who graduated the academy is now in residence and is developing these kinds of relationships with directors and building he's you know building um from the ground up as as a as a writer and I should say that something that is really really special that we're challenging is what authorship is Mm -hmm. So the project that I'm talking about, I'm an equal writing partner. Mm-hmm. So long term, I'm I'm I get royalties mm-hmm. on the house, and and in new work that we're doing, where designers are there from the ground up, they're writers. Mm-hmm. They have authorship, mm-hmm. um, which changes the scope of your of expectation mm-hmm. on you when you're in a room yeah. that you are. Um, it's not great. Well, so I think we've all decided that it should be this period. So you run away and do research. It's a much more uh, deeper running river, I think. So, and I want this to grow so that th- we're we're now developing work at Soul Pepper where these kinds of workshopping, developing from the ground up, can involve designers very, very early in the process and they can carry through with that project Mm -hmm. as opposed to just a director saying, oh, I want to work with this person. I always work with that person. It would be much more meaningful, I think, and interesting that designers are there because they started writing that project with everybody. Mm -hmm. So my hope is to develop a community, develop an ecology of designers that come through this building where... They're not just coming in and sort of whipping in from Stratford to bang out a show to, to get away, to go do the work that pays more or whatever, mm-hmm. that they actually feel invested, not just in the show, the project they're working on, but they feel part of, hopefully, 
um, a larger sort of art community mm-hmm. um, that is uh, sort of happy to say is becoming more complex, more sophisticated with people like Ravi Jain, Alan Dilworth, um, Wayne Mangesha coming on board as resident artists committing to long periods of time here mm-hmm. changes the the ecology of what Soul Pepper was, which was an actor-centric company, mm-hmm. which made sense at the time mm-hmm. and has now grown to something kind of bigger than that, mm-hmm. where how we tell stories is becoming more complex. And so the people with um, voices at the table mm-hmm. is much more diverse in terms of discipline and culturally, I think. We're trying. We're trying. Hi there, I'm interrupting briefly to ask you once again to support the title block on Patreon.com. Click on Support the Show in the show notes. This will bring you to my Patreon page where you can donate a small amount every episode. I'm just asking that you help to cover the costs and help me to continue to capture the story of Canadian theatre design. Go to Patreon.com slash the title block podcast and donate a couple of bucks an episode. It really helps. All right. So uh, we spoke a little bit about uh, about how you form your aesthetic and how an artist kind of finds their voice. And ha- in the context of theater design, how do you how did you go about that, and what did you land on, or did you? Um, you know, I think I probably started uh, really admiring a lot of other work and trying to kind of copy it or something. <clears throat> I think that's not uncommon. I know for musicians, uh, I heard this really great story. I'm trying to remember who the musician was. Elvis Costello was saying uh, he learned, he sings, I don't know if you're into him, but he's always like at the the far end of his reach. Like he's, his neck is bursting. Mm-hmm. And it's because he tr- spent a lot of his early years trying to sing like someone else. Like I forget the artist, but he was like trying to sing like that, that artist, that pr- performer. And in trying to copy, he kind of came up with what is now the very Elvis Costello sound. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think, I think I did a lot of that. I think probably like Michael Levine's aesthetic really spoke to me, just a kind of uh, minimalistic, poetic uh, kind of uh, distilling down to something essential. Mm-hmm. And that's grown like I used to be very much interested in metaphor, uh, metaphorical environments, and I think that's probably was defining find my aesthetic for a long time and then now I find the last few years I'm a little less or less five years I feel like less interested in metaphor um and I'm just like really interested in how the the form functions and that the function can define the form Mm -hmm. and uh and so thinking a bit more like uh yeah like Mies van der Rohe the architect or something where like he says favorite design was uh, an airplane mm-hmm. because it's form. It has to be that shape. Mm-hmm. You can't put anything on the outside because mm-hmm. it'll crash. Mm-hmm. So its shape defines its form, and, and, it, and so it, it has a kind of truth about it, mm-hmm. not to get too, you know, speaking of truths. <laughs> but, um, but I think that <clears throat> I've, I've grown to really do think about material now a lot and how the creating emotional space is really interesting to me rather than um, 
you know, metaphors that are a bit too literal or um, not sophisticated enough. So I think I've arrived at an aesthetic, hopefully, that, like, I think, depending on the scale of the house and where you are, but I, I really do believe to the kind of eye roll of a lot of my technical directors, but that material matters. So if something is to be steel, it can't be like steel or it's as if it's steel and it needs to be steel. It needs to look like steel. It needs to have the ethereal quality and reflection of steel. So, or when the same goes for an old aged piece of wood that, there needs to be a way, there needs to be a starting place where that material is like it's, 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 in, it's speaking and that somehow if it's saying, I'm not this thing, I'm, I'm, I'm a, a, a faux version of that thing, it lacks a kind of authenticity and, and a sophistication even on stage. That changes, of course, when you're 100 feet away at an opera house, right. but in the scale of houses that I work with often here at Soul Pepper, um, I'm very interested in the material and its meaning and, and what it conjures up. Um, so, uh, not a lot of faux wood floors in my life anymore or painted wallpaper, but kind of getting down to something more essential, I guess. And so probably minimalist on some level. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. What the, like, I guess I'm really interested in the design feeling like it's written in to the show, like you saw the show and you're like, oh, that, that must have been in the stage direction or something. It seems so integrated with performance. So I guess the writer came up with that idea or something, which, you know, I just did a production of Eurydice uh, last year and the writer actually wrote this elevator into the play and the elevator opens and it's raining. Mm -hmm. So it's a huge, but right away, what's exciting about that <clears throat> is she kind of sets the bar of where she, her expectation, how design should be in conversation with her play and integrated. So you're trying to solve her interests and then somehow that meet yours. And I, I really do, you know, I work with so many different directors here and I really, you know, with Albert, it's always very fast. He doesn't have a lot of time. Mm -hmm. And, and he responds to actors in rehearsal, the rehearsal halls where he does most of his creation responding to the room. So, so we've defined a process for ourselves that kind of allows for that, mm -hmm. where, we, where we create something that is filled with opportunity. But we're not going to decide. We're not going to storyboard. We're not going to decide how this play is going to move through time. Mm -hmm. We're going to go into the room and figure that out together. And we've been doing that now for at least three years, and it's working great for us. Mm -hmm. And it's exciting to do that with the actors. On the other hand, Alan Dilworth is like the zen Buddhist director, you know, he, he's, he'll sit down and we'll talk and find our way slowly to a thesis. And that thesis, we then build around how to support that thesis of what's essentially this, what is this play essentially about? And <clears throat> so it's a long, it's a lot of conversation, which I, which I love and I adore. And, it, and it's about, this is something, you know, I try to do with designers in the academy is it's not like actually bring yourself to the work. So so I'm doing Doll's House right now with Daniel Brooks and, you know, a lot of the big conversations we're having end up being a lot of personal referencing of our lives mm -hmm. and how it relates around the themes of the play and issues in the play. And and that I happen to have a lot of strong opinions on, on 
the performance style of that show and, and where it should live in terms of psychological realism into something more heightened. Mm-hmm. And that if, if it's not, if I can't get a promise that it will live in that world, then this design idea that I'm proposing that we're talking about won't work. So actually engaging in conversations around performance aesthetic becomes, became, and still is right now in our preliminary phase, a huge defining part of what we talk about. So, um, but metaphor is not at all. We're not both personally at this moment not interested in metaphor. So, um, it changes from director to director, my, my approach. But ultimately, I think that there is an aesthetic in there that, that holds strong. But without a doubt, you know, with, with, and I think this just comes with experience and age and that you get to a place where directors like want to, like I want to work with a director who wants to start at the beginning mm-hmm. with me. And then we're going to move through. So, so if I get asked to be on a project and I can already see, they're like, okay, so we know it wants to be this and we know we're going to do it like that. I'm like, oh, I don't think this is one for me. I need to know that we're going to uh, learn about this play together starting on the road, on the walk together. Mm-hmm. And we just, with different directors, I go about it in a different way. So, <clears throat> and... I have to say I've been extremely lucky that I'd say, you know, my batting average with directors has been pretty, pretty, pretty good and that they're all really generous, really, really generous with their process and inviting me in to many aspects of it. So, so there's a lot of trust. And so like I, on one hand, I totally get why designers and directors work together for their whole lives mm-hmm. because there's, there's this trust and this shorthand that I totally understand. At the same time, I'm in a particular place of responsibility where I'm, I'm going, so who's, who's next? How do, we, how do we help the next Michael Levine? Or, and we're training these young designers and others are coming, surfacing, and we want to give them opportunity. And, and I think it's not something that a lot of theaters in this country feel a responsibility to, mm-hmm. to designers specifically. They do, I think, for acting. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, so, you know, one of the main things now on my agenda is that of the 60 applicants we had this year for the new academy for design, um, I think three were of a visual minority, mm-hmm. visible minority. And... And I was like, why is that? Like, why? What's happening? And I think that three were actually all Chinese. Mm-hmm. So I just, I've been asking around going, is it that this is not something that's nurtured in your community or uh, in that most those cultures find their way to perform through performance? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I'm already challenging some, you know, Ravi who, who is in charge of, community development here as well as being an associate director, I say, you know, find me 10 young fine artists within the visible minority community and we will give them a free masterclass in design. Mm -hmm. Like show these fine artists another aspect, another career that they could potentially find a passion in. Mm -hmm. Maybe they don't want, but it's like, where do you start to expand? Because then it's like, what happens when somebody from that culture suddenly gets control of a checkoff mm-hmm. to design. Like you're going to get something really personal, interesting and different. And so, and so what I've been able to do is 
really focus on a female voice, both last Academy and this Academy, that I think is up until the ni- like late 90s, 2000s, has been, it's been fairly male-dominated on some level in, from the 60s and 70s. And now sort of focus on giving young female voices an opportunity. Uh, but but uh, but how to segue them, how to segue them into the industry and with seasoned directors who uh, are excited to work with them in companies that are willing to take a chance on young designers is a, is still a big question. I think for so many I get asked, so how do you get work or how do you? It, it mystery. seems yeah. It seems like the economic question or um, is probably playing it playing quite largely here. I think that in the seventies <clears throat> and eighties, I feel like there were a lot. Well, I, well, I've been told, and I know this to be true, that there's that there, were, there were a lot more opportunities for people in the seventies mm-hmm. and eighties. Um, I mean, people weren't making as much money, but there was a there wasn't the expectation of that. The cost of living was lower. You could survive at some reasonable. Yes, struggling, but some sort of reasonable level. Uh, and now that all of those designers, most of them are still around, but the market has shrank. Totally. <laughs> and so everyone is sort of keeping a hold of what they have yeah. um, as yeah. they reach retirement. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, as they, as they uh, not become irrelevant, but are competing with people who are, have new ideas, who grew up in a different time, who are addressing different questions. Uh, and and so there's this kind of struggle that I don't think a lot of people are talking about. Totally. Um, At the same time, there's this amazing groundswell of like storefront theaters happening um, that are this, um, um, that, you know, I'm speaking to young designers who it's not at all their dream to go to Stratford. Yeah. Like it's just not where they want to go. Yeah. They don't even want to leave Toronto. Um, it's just of no interest. It's not their story. And it blows my mind because, you know, you think, no, isn't that where you want to go? Um, or so Pepper or, you know, that they, wherever they, that the institution is not that important to them. Career, like it was a big goal of mine to actually though, like make this a career, mm-hmm. to make it viable to all my bills would be paid with this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, such as the, you know, being young and not having responsibilities in the same way but but to still like it was such a drive for me in my 20s was to like I was after a career as opposed to expressing something personal so finding so like um I've met so many wonderful young designers that are so much more in touch with themselves as artists at such a younger age so like I look at Shannon Lee Doyle who just graduated out of the program as a designer went to OCAD she never went to theater school at all. We accepted her because she was a very interesting sculptor mm-hmm. and just came out, she's 22, came out of her degree at OCAD and, but instinctively had this amazing ability to bring herself to a text mm-hmm. and to express her interest within the text that felt very original and very personal that I said, okay, well, here's somebody that's like this amazing seed that we should help nurture. Mm-hmm. And, and, now, to, like she already at twenty five now leaving her resume is way beyond mine at twenty five. Mm-hmm. Just got in my MFA, mm-hmm. and she's got two or three Soul Pepper shows under her belt. Um, Anahita, who just left her program, is designing at Stratford. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, <clears throat> she, they're starting. They're st- like she anyway. Shannon has this interest in. 
like her her desire and passion and I keep trying to drive home like yeah but you, you know you've got to make this a career if you and she's like you know but I want to do my sculpture and I want to do this and I want to do that and that what drives the what drives her is not this kind of economic system or sort of trying to make it fit within that. And of course she doesn't have to completely worry about that right now in a way that you do in your thirties, perhaps when you take on more debt or you whatever. But but it's different. It's it's a larger, more philosophical difference that I I allowed myself to be part of the cog in that wheel a little bit in that um, in that mm, kind of wanted to be part of a system in some way like I felt the the kind of security of that and the terror of not knowing what the next thing was whereas there's like there's those that actually embrace the not knowing mm-hmm. in a really amazing way and so I admire it and kind of like envy it can I ask how uh your family eventually reacted when you got out of theater school and went to your MFA and they, they realized you weren't going to become a teacher. I think uh, they thought I was going to be a teacher. It's it extraordinary, silly, you know, not silly, but, you know, my father was like a pretty traditional, strict Italian and my mom's Canadian and she, they both just wanted security. They both came from poor families, so wanted just security for their kids and I totally get that. Um, so I went to university with the idea to be a teacher, and then and then I remember at some point this horrible phone call actually made from like the pub on campus where I thought maybe after my second year I was going to be an actor, mm-hmm. and I called. I said, you know, I might think about applying to George Brown, and like the silence was unbelievable, and then just the total rage, like you want to be an actor? What's going on with you? And then I actually thought about it. I don't want to, didn't want to be an actor, but I realized at that point I don't think there's any way of explaining this. Mm-hmm journey I'm on that you'll understand so I always just kept I think the teacher thing up the MFA was like not gonna be a high school teacher I'm gonna be a professor so that seemed exciting to them and then when I started hitting the pavement in Toronto it was like phone calls every morning at like 8 a.m. what are you doing now when are you gonna be a teacher I was like what no I'm gonna be a designer and the funny thing was is my you know a long time ago but my dad passed away suddenly heart attack and literally like a week later Stratford called right. to give me a job. So I think you would love to have seen me at Stratford amongst that and kind of finally understood mm-hmm. uh, because he didn't understand about these organizations. But I remember saying, you know, pointing out people to him like Michael Levine and saying, you know, they do exist. There's people making a living at this. And so why can't it be me? Yeah. But this does segue back a little bit because I'm part of the Associate Designers of Canada mm-hmm. and we've been in uh, it's kind of trying to, it's sort of in a revival period, I think, and that it's trying, it's gaining a lot of traction in terms of more membership of a younger generation than it never had before. And they've often referenced my generation as the lost generation because none of us joined ADC. Mm-hmm. Or we did as apprentices mm-hmm. and they never picked up a phone because yeah. it was kind of a defunct thing. And then I quit. And then there's a whole bunch of us that have now rejoined and, and my goal, personal goal with, within that organization is not, you know, I think contracts are important and all those things, but it's actually to try to build an authentic community of designers mm-hmm. and, um, and to try to, so for example, for me to, I was exposed to Michael Levine's work being showcased down at the, uh, what is now N-Wave, yeah, uh, Harbor Front Center. Harbor, yeah, yeah. 
So they did a big, I think it was like a pre-quadrennial, mm-hmm. uh, the, the design conference, pre-quad for his work that was going over or something. Anyway, it I hadn't met him yet, and I was still, I think, in university, and I saw this, and it blew my mind to see a Canadian person, designer's work, ex- being um, shown in a very big way to, to the public. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, this person must do this for a living. Like, this is their living, right? Mm-hmm. So it actually gives you license to dream. Mm-hmm. And we need, so you need to show examples. There needs mm-hmm. to be examples. And we don't, designers, high, we, such a secluded life, mm-hmm. such a, you know, on your own, that there's designers that, you know, I've never met that, that are colleagues, but I, you know, mm-hmm. how have I not met you yet? And, um, and so when we all get together on occasion and start talking, you know, I, nine times a 10, my experience of them is like, wow, why don't we do this more? Why don't we all get together and have wine and talk? And, you know, yeah, it starts off as a bit of a bitch fest. And then, and then it goes into something more interesting and positive, whether it's just, again, talking about life and everything else around us or it's, you hear a story. But to have a young designer be privy to that mm-hmm. is like you're sitting – I remember sitting in a bar at Stratford with, you know, all these designers before me and I'm like, oh, I'm doing uh, – they're like, what are you working on right now? And I said, oh, I'm working on uh, um, this Carol Churchill play uh, – and now I'm suddenly blanking on the name of it. Uh, anyway, I said, and Peter Hartwell, who I was assisting, Peter Hartwell, the designer, Shaw designer, mm-hmm. says, oh, uh, I did the original production, Cloud9. Right. And he says, yeah, I did the original production in England. I'm like, right. what? Mm-hmm. I'm doing an indie show in Toronto. Yeah. And he says, well, what are you doing? And I told him, I kind of sketched it on a napkin. He says, that's weird. I would never have thought that doesn't, almost doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Just given where they, he's like, and I worked with Carol Churchill, like she, yeah. it was the original production. And that just kind of like, just what it does to make you feel part of a community mm-hmm. and deserve, like you are, you're, you're on the inside of something. I think we can't underestimate. So I'm curious to, I question all of us as designers, like how can we take the responsibility to give the experience that I got and Dana and Michael and everybody got, Michael G. and Francesco, how can we give that to the next generation? And I've heard someone say, send the elevator back down. Mm-hmm. I love that phrase. Mm-hmm. So so I'm trying right now, and this, if anybody in ADC is hearing this, young associates, we have an associate level, and I've tried to start a mentorship program where an associate that just comes in, a young, just at a university student, can get paired with an experienced ADC member and just have somebody they can go for a coffee with seasonally yeah. and just try to feel connected to something so you don't quit. Because yeah. I remember, like, I didn't meet somebody soon, I'm out. Yeah. And so I think that's really, really important. And right now, to be honest, we're not getting a lot of bites. And it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of like I'm trying to figure out what's going on. So. Yeah. It's hard in this um, kind of competing with the social media and True. This, the illusion of connectedness when really... Well, that's a really Sitting good point. Sitting in a room is yeah the the better experience, yeah. really. Um, okay, so uh, there are so many points at which I could wrap this up because 
we land on a great point, but there's so many th more things we want to talk about. So we have about, uh, you have to leave in, in about 20 minutes. So let's, let's try and um, sure. answer a couple more questions and then talk about the stuff you're doing right now. Okay. Um, the, <clears throat> uh, I think we've talked a lot about the Resident Artist Program here mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and, and the Academy, but let's talk about, you, you, you were talking about the actual, the, the sort of three-pronged approach to play development and how design is incorporated in that. Um, Try to lead me through how Soul Pepper uh, is fostering new works and how they approach. Because it used to be a classically focused company. Yeah, so we used to Soul Pepper. Really, you know, became when it started. It became, of course, um, for those who don't know, you know, the the founding members were all very active actors at Stratford and had there. They were part of the young company at Stratford, and then they were not invited back suddenly, mm -hmm. like just out of the blue, a Robin Phillips and his young company were no longer part of the organization and they all went off to do different things and um, got TV shows, etc. But then their passion, of course, lay in doing classical theater and that's and they all wanted to come back around those stories again and tell them in Toronto and, and create a market for classical theater in Toronto. Mm -hmm. So they did that, but they did that... Um, Laszlo Martin, who they met, uh, Diego, I think, was probably the core connection from... So Laszlo from Budapest, mm -hmm. who runs a company out there, started to do a Chekhov masterclass with them, which led to him um, basically doing some of their first few mm -hmm. major shows here and started to define, I think, a type of work within the company that was pretty defining, pretty exciting. Um and then uh, now, after doing that kind of work for, I don't know, their first 10 years, you, you do, as Albert say, you start to kind of go, what's like, which one do I take off this shelf next? And it starts to become a bit, okay, well, then directors start pitching shows. Mm -hmm. But the, the assembly of a season, because then the more complicated thing is we've gone to a year-round season, so we don't ever stop don't have time to sit and read like 50 plays so so now there's a much more like a greater interest in fostering and seeding and developing work over a longer period of time so then when it comes time to putting together a season you could say well this one's ready to go this one's ready to go this one's ready to go it has a director designer it has some actors are still connected and so one example of that i mentioned with Diego, working with diego um, <clears throat> there's been projects that we've developed of human bondage going out to playwright is more traditional approach and saying, do an adaptation, or they say, I've been working on this adaptation. So now we have Guillermo Verdecchia, who's our head of playwriting, who can help facilitate that with writers out there. The, the other way is, is, uh, to do a commission. And so, so Pepper has just embarked on, and it just kind of got released, but embarked on like the largest commissioning project, I think, ever, which is they've gone, it's called Imagine Nation, capital N on Nation. And so it's about reaching out to every corner of the country, west to east, north to south, a multi, you know, diverse community of commissions. And it has a particular theme, which is that it's like hoping this massive commission, which is like 30 to 40 artists providing, uh, being paid to provide a one-page synopsis of what they might do with this opportunity. 
and that the hope is that someone like, say, Marie Broussard in Montreal would come and work with Soul Pepper to do something that is either a reflection of her perspective of being Canadian, which means she could take a classic and filter it through her personal experience, or she could write a new piece from scratch. Um, but she might do it with the artists here that we have at her resident artists at her disposal. Um, so, uh, and this has been sent out to uh, novelists. Um, we're, we've even tried to reach out to sort of installation artists, to classic playwrights. So Pamela Sina, who we already have a relationship with, she did a happy place here. She's going to continue into another thing, another piece of writing for us. Um, there's a whole, I mean, I could, so many people that are being reached out to and that the hope that they then over the next three to five years will be seeding and developing projects. And so one of them may come and say, hey, I'd like two weeks to develop something in a room. We'll say, great, here's eight actors you can work with. And they're like, you know, I really feel like design is going to be an important part of this. I'd love to work with a designer and talk about how I'd like, like, is projection part of this storytelling? How could it be? Great. Myself, Ken McKenzie, who's in residence, are the start of that conversation. It could then mean I say, you know, I've got the right person for you. It's this person. And we start to connect artists to projects that, in a much more meaningful way, I think a deeper way that that develops over a course of time. And then you're just, those projects are ready to go. And then they go into being featured in the season. Uh, they may have, so uh, for example, right now, Mike Ross, our musical director, and Sarah Wilson, who I mentioned, my wife, who's an actor in the company, she's writing a musical. She's writing a libretto for a new kids musical. Um, and they've been developing this and it's in the works and we'll probably do a concert this December mm -hmm. and then the following December it may see itself as a production mm -hmm. but it's like a two, three year commitment on a project like that and this is all possible because of a new restructuring of contracting that Albert in his insane puzzle making brain mm -hmm. has gone about doing which is that that you are in resonance here mm -hmm. so that as an actor you will only do actually so many hours per week on stage mm -hmm. I think it's like tops 15 hours or four shows a week right. for, for a majority of actors right. in rep. So then your other of your 42-hour required week, mm -hmm. your other hours can be spent in development projects. Mm -hmm. So you may be asked, and then what that does is you're already part of the seeding process. So it's potentially giving you work in the future because mm -hmm. that project may go and you may be part of it. You may not, but but it's it's – Basically, what we're looking in the, in the real sense of company is like it's not just about a show mm -hmm. and you do your show and you leave. It's about how you can contribute to the many things that are going on within this building. Mm -hmm. The Academy is another big one and how they integrate into that and how we – what we bring to the Academy. So <clears> – so – Design is starting to play a larger role because, quite frankly, I, I like I turn the corner and it's another some writer saying, "I want to work. I don't want to work with a director right now. I want to work with a designer mm -hmm. first. It's like okay, and that can happen. That can happen here. Um, and and then the larger the larger scope of kind of being director of design, I guess, is still trying to maintain and challenge a standard, a kind of quality. And of course, that both means 
bringing amazingly talented people into the building as much as I can, like the Kevin Lamonts and Bonnie Beechers and all sorts of really talented Yonics and Cammy, if she'd ever come and <laughs> spend some time. Um, all these wonderful designers that have really uh, exciting aesthetics and uh, uh, it's about that, but it's also wanting to figure out how we can bring them into the larger fold of things too. Mm -hmm. And and all of them have, you know, the ones I've talked to, it's like, yeah, I'd love to do that. It's just, it's, as we know for designers, the hard thing is they're so booked, the ones that are working are booked so far ahead mm -hmm. that they're working off like a Stratford Shaw cycle, which is they get an offer in June mm -hmm. for something that they'll go into residence for. So we're, but we're year round, so we never know when an opportunity is going to come up that we want to get somebody for. And it's always a challenge to get them before they're booked. So, you know, and this is always ongoing and, but. Yeah. Okay. So let's, for the last couple of minutes, let's talk about the stuff that you're doing right now. Mm -hmm. uh, there are four shows in rep mm -hmm. in the building, which mm -hmm. given the size of the building, I mean, for the people who have never been to Salt Pepper, it's, mm -hmm. it was built out of, uh, out of the former distillery district. Uh, they're repurposed spaces. They're not built with tons of backstage room. Uh, the tank house has zero backstage space. Yep. Um, and the main space has minimal um, how do you do rep yeah. in that damn yeah. space? No. So the, 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 the Bailey is a little bit more forgiving in that there's, there is about seven or eight feet of what we'd call wing space mm -hmm. on the, if you put the masking in. Okay. Um, I've in the last, this year, actually this may be the first year where I've doing this summer, I'm doing two shows in there in the Bailey I'm doing Father Comes Home from the Wars and Doll's House, doing the set for both shows that are repping. And so I can begin dealing with that as I design it and start speaking to the directors about it. Um, because often what happens is, is we take one show, we break it into pieces, and we put it off to each side, and then we just throw some masking up in front of it. So as soon as you open that masking, there's like a big giant set right there. So then it's like, how do you get off stage if all the masking, like there's no wings? So you start figuring it, but literally because, you know, as you say, you know, that we have this heritage brick wall as our rear wall, we can't touch it. The door to get into the into the stage is only 10 feet high. There's no, but there's no set that's gonna be just 10 feet high. So, um, so you can't even roll things out into the loading dock. Uh, furniture, smaller pieces can, and the larger pieces all have to live on the same stage as the other show that's gotta now perform so it's a tricky game and it's a lot easier when a single designer is already in conversation with that but we do it all the time now and it's never the same each time and it's always a question of uh eventually the designs can come in and then the td needs to sit down with them i try to enter the discussion as director of design a little bit where i could say you know in my experience i would go back to that designer and get them talking about how they can sort masking out together or whatever mm -hmm. Uh, the Michael Young is like there's no, there's no, it's smaller, there's no wing space, mm -hmm. and unless you make it, and again, so it's it's like huge amounts of compromise, and so like what I've done for so right now I'm designing Incident to Vichy and Testament of Mary, mm -hmm. and I've made them both play on a floor and a back wall that's shared, mm -hmm. and I tried to find the connecting tissue between the shows thematically and. Um, and I feel like we've landed on something that makes sense for both shows. Mm -hmm. You know, 
there's no, for me, there's not like, it, it's fine because I'm the author of both those riz. It's harder to convince two designers to do that together because you start to feel like, well, I want my show to look this way. You want your show. It's really hard to arrive on a singular kind of Tanya Moseyevich festival neutral idea. Um, and it's not something we really often pursue. We let them work in isolation. Then we try to figure out how to make them work together. Um, it's kind of a miracle because we keep doing it, but it's not ideal. It's a huge, con- I'd say that I go back to the drawing board like almost every time. That I So I always share my prelims early before prelims are due. And I say, this is the direction we're thinking of going. And they sit there and like, there's no way we can store that. I just say to the director, let's just go somewhere else right now because this is just not going to be, we'll be banging our head against the wall and be disappointed. So so rep is really, really hard here. Uh, and that's why we're also looking for a new theater right now. And Albert has plans to build something and that's exciting. But that's, you know, who knows how many five to 10 years away that is. So in the meantime, we do our thing. And so it's just being really clever. Everything gets extremely modular and has to break up because the other challenge is, like, you know, Stratford will have eight crew. Mm-hmm. We have two crew, mm-hmm. an hour per show. Mm-hmm. So you get a two-hour window. And you've got two people. So in, think of what can be picked up and moved by two people at a time versus eight. Yeah. It's um, And so in that sense, I'm really, you know, I think we have an amazing production department and I love working with them and really strong technical directors that have, I feel like have developed a skill base in the, through that craziness that if they ever, and they're not allowed, but if they ever went elsewhere, <laughs> they would be like, oh, it's so much easier. <laughs> but I, I think that the uh, name of the game for me is, is having to go to the table much earlier than you normally would, stay in conversation with the technical director, get them involved in the dialogue early so that... Um, that you can get them on board as opposed to drop off this impossible two shows Mm -hmm. and so that they can kind of ramp up, start wrapping their brains around something. And I should say they're wrapping their brains around the preliminaries of something while they're trying to get four shows on stage, right? So it's never good timing Mm -hmm. and they're always pushed more than ever being pushed to their kind of capacity of what they can take in their brain Mm -hmm. and facilitate. So, um, and they do it. They do it really well. And Mike Ledemuller is the head technical director, and he's got an extraordinary brain. And they're all very brave. And like you can see, you can see the kind of pressure. Um, so that's the other thing about being part of a community and being somewhere. As I'm sure Kevin can speak to about Shaw, but when you have that shorthand with your TD, like you do with your directors that you work with for a long time, I feel like Mike and I have a of a, are able to reference lots of shows. I'd be like, it's sort of like a bondage, but kind of like, remember what we did on that show? And it's a bit of this. We have a shorthand. And <clears throat> and so it both means that I understand if he says, yeah, but remember that show? And I'm like, oh, right. I don't want to repeat that. <laughs> but it also means I can challenge and I can say, listen, you know, we did something like that already and we can do it again. And yes, I'm asking you to. So so uh, so rep is hard. It's, it's harder than I think anywhere else that I've worked rep in. Um, uh, I think that glass I mentioned earlier, that's like, you know, it's made up of a third time, a third engineering, and a third budget. And if you can fill that glass, you know, you can do what you need to. But sometimes, you know, two people, 
that's not filling that third with human power. And, and uh, so anyway, um, but it's also, I'll say this too, and this is important, I think, like the limitations mm-hmm. have led to really exciting work. Mm-hmm. So that there's something that happens that when you get everything you want and you can have all the change of recruitment, absolutely you can make a big, massive, incredible machine that's going to do this thing. And But then sometimes you know you can't and you end up with a 16 by 16 red floor in a room with a bunch of actors saying, well, how are we going to do this then if we can't do it that way? And mm-hmm. so it's, a, in other words, the limitation is a variable in your process mm-hmm. and you can either rail against that and like weep all the time about compromise or uh, I think Steven Spielberg I always carry this with me but he said like he had to learn to bed compromise Mm -hmm. and once he learned how to go to bed with compromise his he was able to really start doing interesting things and I really resonated with me because I just you know there was like a patch of time where I just was like this is impossible and so so learning to in, in embrace it and engage it is important. Well, it sounds like here at uh, Salt Pepper, you guys have kind of embodied. Uh, and as uh, I will say, as a preface, you know, twenty years ago there was a bit of pessimism uh, or maybe jealousy about the Salt Pepper experience, uh, especially since it was very actor focused in the early days, right? Like, Without a doubt. Yeah, uh, but it sounds like they've they and you have built a community here that you could certainly be proud of and certainly seems like on the forefront of creating theater as well, which is something that is important to make sure that the medium survives, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I remember when I was thinking about coming to the Academy 10 years ago, I thought, but what do they know about design and they don't seem to really be that interested in it. And then I spoke to Michael, mm-hmm. who had a very specific experience with Laszlo. It's not that that was sure. exactly representative of all the work they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been here like f- on and off freelancing, but being here in a really significant way for 10 years and then now in the last couple of years all the time. Mm-hmm. And I can say that that what's happening, and again, I think that this is an incredibly... Um, can ima- you know, to f- for the many members that founded this with their blood, sweat, and tears, mm-hmm. who now are not always leading this company, mm-hmm. but have made room mm-hmm. for another generation to define and evolve the mandate and redefine what Soul Pepper is, mm-hmm. and for Albert to always seem to have the vision in the looking ahead to wanting to know what tomorrow brings and who's going to lead that and to bring more and more voices, make room for more voices in the conversation. Uh, and to know, for me, you know, the idea of community, to develop a community that it's not going to look like it always looked like at the beginning and it's going to change and evolve. To make room for that is an extraordinary gift that they've given mm-hmm. me and many others. Um, and But I get it and I get the whole... <clears throat> Uh, I experienced a lot of like weird, confusing angst whenever like someone realized I had an association or like this is maybe 10 or eight years ago, like with Soul Pepper. And I was always like, what, what's that anger about? Why are you, you don't even know me. Why? <laughs> and, and that you also don't know what's going on. But I think it is like, uh, just cause it's this it just keeps growing and growing and growing. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a lot of, uh, uh, 
think it's taken Soul Pepper a little while to figure out how to share it, what's going on, how to share it with the community and the outside world. And I think this unprecedented ability to actually create resident artists that can be here and shape the the uh, the direction, the voice, the like that are f- that are from v- so it's hard for the indie community to get pissed at Soul Pepper when indie artists are being given resonant artistship. It, yeah, you know, so it's it's just it's trying to give lots of people opportunity and and i think hopefully you know there's no it's like just try, we're just trying to find something interesting and authentic but the thing that i that is really that is very real is this academy that an enormous amount of resources and energy is put into these individuals mm-hmm. and they've come to graduate and then be absorbed in a way and then taken and have demanded of the company something to go in a direction and they've responded. So it's, you know, and it's, and I don't want to end with this, but I'll just say that like, it's not all roses and it's a really, it's a complicated organization like Stratford is. And there's times when you're here and you wish you were, the grass is greener and, and as, especially as designer, just instinctively, Mm -hmm. you see other people doing things and you're like, wow, that's really exciting. And you're not caught up in the bureaucracy of an organization and, so there's, there's, you know, and it's still, uh, uh, so it feels almost sometimes like it's going too fast, like mm-hmm. we're too ambitious, which, you know, is kind of maybe sounds boring or something, but it's like sometimes I want to just slow down. But, um, but uh, well, that's certainly not, it's not part of the characteristic or makeup and certainly not Albert and, and he's, his ambition is, is amazing and it's given a lot of people amazing opportunities. So, um, so right now it's, it's a really interesting, more complicated conversation going on in the building than it's ever been. Mm-hmm. It sounds like that's more reason to have a diverse voice as well. So I you have so. a lot of choices. Yeah. I mean, the danger, when you first started telling me about this, the, I had the same kind of anxiety, but moving too quickly because the danger is to sort of rarefy uh, everyone's time and experience uh, and then, you know, things can collapse in upon themselves. But if you diversify, if you give a lot of different people, a lot of different voices opportunity to speak in that, it sounds like you you are uh, hedging your bets against finding the, the solution that works, right? Yeah, but I think you hit on something important. I think your first point is that people, rather than just feeling like you just, I think, and, you know, we're trying to take great care, but that when you are being thrown at a project, mm-hmm. being used in a way to help facilitate a project here, there, over there, that it's important to every artist and individual that they, it's not enough to just go, well, whatever, I get paid weekly and mm-hmm. that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to understand why you're doing it, mm-hmm. who you're doing it with, to have a more intimate, meaningful connection to the work you're doing. And I think sometimes, I'd say most of the time we succeed at that and sometimes we do f- find ourselves a bit like, closing our eyes and throwing lots of darts at a board and kind of going, why, like, I don't even understand why we're putting so much energy in this thing. I don't understand the full scope of it, but okay. And then now we'll put that aside and whatever happened to that thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I would say that's such a, that, that is a kind of, uh, less, certainly less the case just because they can't afford to have projects actually work that way. They have Mm -hmm. to be 
moving in the right direction and and uh, and I think because it's diversified, like there's like Guillermo running that and Alan running a directing program, and that there's more people uh, questioning uh, and being part of what's the direction we're moving in, and sort of have some degree of um, basically a seat at the table, the capital T, mm-hmm. so that. Um, there's questioning, there's questions are being asked, being considered and answered. So it's harder now to let, we don't let each other off the hook. And that's, that's a good thing of having a council, yeah. I think. Yeah. And, and not relying on kind of, uh, King Albert to set the agenda by himself. Right? Yeah. 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 And he could. And so he absolutely could just sit in, in a room in a big chair and make a whole bunch of decisions. I, I know Albert very, very well. We're mm-hmm. close colleagues and friends, so I can say that I know that's not where his, mm-hmm. he doesn't find that interesting. Yeah. He doesn't find that interesting at all. And what he's more interested in is what happens when this person does this thing, starts this thing, and this person responds, and then he comes to it and goes, okay, that's really exciting. Uh, here's what I could bring to that or how I could help nurture that. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> you know, so, and music has become, you know, for him and, and the discovery of Mike Ross, who is in my academy and has now become such a defining person and, and artist in this building, but that music has become a part of the organization in a way that's been a huge transformation. So now into a whole other kind of um, genre of art and music in concerts, and but also <clears throat> in taking work that isn't meant for music and applying a kind of musical aesthetic to it um, so they did this E. Cummings project where they just took poems of E. Cummings and, the, and they craft devised a play out of it. And it's kind of like watching a kind of really cool Arcade Fire live rock video mm-hmm. for an hour mm-hmm. uh, using the poems of E. Cummings. And so, and it was a fair, fairly successful for us. So it's, it's exciting to see potentially that our audience is open to new form. And I, you know, we'll be continuing to challenge that and see because you still, I understand the weight on Albert's shoulder because if we all enjoy doing what this, we also have to make some money. So we also have to do Odd Couple, yeah. which is not a bad thing. It's an amazingly crafted play, mm-hmm. but but it but the 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 full. I remember you talking to Kevin about this, but that like, it's a festival in a sense mm-hmm. in that you are serving up a range of. Uh, things to eat mm-hmm. and and uh, I would just we're I think there's some of us that want to push mm-hmm. the brain to boundaries so it's not like coleslaw or spinach salad it's <laughs> like more like wow I've never tasted that before mm-hmm. to that's very comforting you know that's great uh the um the last question I'd just like to land on and this is <clears> one <throat> that we sort of get to at the end of most of the the episodes is what you would tell new designers now um uh you run the, or you you are you are responsible for portion of the academy here. So uh, I know you probably think about this a lot. But what is your idea? Someone just starting in the business, or just come out of uh, maybe a general program at Guelph, uh, or they're thinking of going into a conservatory program. What do you think that people should be focusing <coughs> on if they want to have a career in theater? Mm-hmm. And uh, is that a good idea? Yeah, a career in yeah. theater. Yeah, oh, I think it's an amazing <laughs> thing. Yeah, I think absolutely. We need artists, and we need we need theater to com- to continue and I um, I don't think I don't think it's 
I'm in a position or anybody's in a position to tell someone else, you know, but you know, it's economically really difficult. Like there's lots of hard, like I have friends that graduated with chemistry degrees that were out of work. Mm -hmm. Like it's just, it's just hard. Mm. Um, and so if you're going to, if it's a calling, if it's a vocation, I don't know that you really have a choice sometimes. It's just, it's, I couldn't wait to sort of turn 30 because then the idea of going back to school just became so much more difficult a notion mm-hmm. so and would make would be would require some real major decision not just a flirting with maybe I'll go do this it's like okay I'm going to stop doing this so uh, to a young designer though who feels the calling you know, or feels extremely passionate and interested in it I would just say that there are uh, my and I don't want to speak to any program specifically I just think that I do think it's really important to understand design through the lens of a, through a broader lens than just the studio. Mm-hmm. So understanding how to come to a play, how to read a play and how to live in a live in a space in a creation space with actors and directors. So which maybe leads me to just like make sure whatever program you go into is, is dealing with collaboration, is really challenging or making you practice, just practice collaborating. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I'd say it's really important that you let your interests and your in, what you're influenced by become much more than theater. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, fine art, installation art is the first, like the more direct thing, direct relationship. But the music, sports, like just become an interesting human being, an artist. And it's amazing. So because what you're looking to do, I think, ultimately is have a voice as an artist who has can ma- develop a maturity and a confidence to have an opinion and a point of view. Oh, no. <laughs> you want to be hopefully arrive at a place where you are uh, – confident artist who has a point of view on the theater and on why we want to tell these stories not just on I'm really good at choosing the right color of red or I understand everything about this period of costume those start to feel sort of irrelevant in the larger conversation around how to make this work, whatever you're doing, be alive right now and speak to an audience right now. And I think that that can only happen, it can't happen in isolation in a studio learning how to build a model really well. All that stuff's important, but actually knowing how to integrate design in a way that's connected to performance and is intended with really strong collaboration with directors is important. And if you can, and something I try to give here is like, access to collaborating with experienced directors even on a studio level because their thinking is so much more sophisticated and they have a methodology in place so negotiating and understanding that methodology will only deepen your approach to making theater Mm -hmm. so if you were to go to a university like I know NTS brings in guest professional directors I just don't know how much the designers work with them I don't know but it would be something to investigate so 
So making sure that rather than like I did a program and after four years, like I became a really good perspective drawer, mm -hmm. like it's going to feel really irrelevant when you're sitting across the brain of Daniel Brooks, right. who doesn't want to draw for three weeks. Mm -hmm. He just wants to talk. Yeah. And um, so, so I'm of the being a well-rounded human being yeah. uh, approach, but um it's kind of like designers are crazy because I feel like, and maybe I'm, but like I feel more than any other discipline, we're more far, re far reaching. Like, like, uh, we have to both understand how to read a play, but we also have to understand how to talk to technicians. We have to like the amount of experience and knowledge that we need reaches farther than I think almost every, any discipline. So, because our hands are in so many pots. And uh, so the notion that you can learn it all in an undergrad or even in an MFA is a bit crazy and that there's the on-the-job training that you gain from experience that is just kind of impossible to replace. And so assisting is an extremely valuable thing. If you can assist, reach out. You'd be so surprised, designers. Uh, you know, I think a lot of young designers, I'm not going to call them. That would be crazy. They don't want to hear from me. <laughs> God, we're all so, our, we love it. Mm -hmm. It flatters us and we want, we want it. And, and so I know some designers pay in experience so that they can't afford to pay you, but that they'll give you the opportunity to assist them and get the hands-on experience, but then are flexible with your time because, of course, that means you're needing to work elsewhere. And then there are other designers, and then you're going to speak to Michael, and I think, you know, one of the unfortunate but wonderful things is Michael moved to England mm -hmm. which is wonderful for him and his relationship and his life and most of his works over there and now he's finally living with his partner mm -hmm. he lived apart for so long um, but it's a little hole in the community because Cami Koo Julie Fox myself Yannick all worked in his studio mm -hmm. um, Victoria Wallace hit he and he paid, he paid a very competitive hourly mm -hmm. for young designers building models. Expectations were high, and he was very generous with you being aware of what and why, mm -hmm. not just being a machine in a studio. So this is there's really was no other designer that had the career that could afford to do that, mm -hmm. and it, he no longer lives here. So after us there's like it's not like you say oh you should now i can tell somebody you should go work in michael's studio yeah. <laughs> that doesn't that's not an option here um i wish theater companies could give designers assistant like fees to pay assistance to help them it's i understand it's hard but um i could you know at the very least i do it with two young designers but um but yeah, no. And I know some designers that really do continue to hire assistants and like Ken McDonald mm -hmm. hires assistants all the time mm -hmm. and they gain, I did, I assisted Ken back in the day and it, mm -hmm. it's just amazing. Just you can't learn and you just learn so much. Yeah. So that's important. Too. That's great. So uh, theater more than just commentary is a lived experience. So you have to actually experience life in order to do it well. Well said. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. I want to say just on record, I think that, that what you're doing is important I think that uh, regardless of what this will mean later on and some time cats will be sent out to space, <laughs> I think it's, it's, I would have killed as a young designer in my 20s to have had access to the voices you've captured, mm -hmm. um, like 
especially the ones that were part of the early Toronto and Canada scene of theater starting in the 60s and 70s. And so um, <clears throat> I, I would urge people to tell other people about what you're doing to make sure that professors know and people are listening to this and it's, it's good stuff to listen to when you're working or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's terrific. So, how, if people want to uh, have an opportunity here at Soul Pepper in yeah. the Academy, how do yeah. they get a hold of you and where do they go and what do they have to do? Yeah, if they go on the, uh, we have uh, on the uh, website, there's an education section mm-hmm. and sort of there's some information and I'm uh, Lorenzo Design at yahoo.com and you can always email me directly. We just accepted and are starting our next academy this August. So it'll be three years from this August uh, when we start the next one. So it's a two-year cycle with a year off. and But we start looking at the end of the two years. We start the audition process. And it's so what I've noticed is that we've had an increase for sure. We think doubled our applicants or almost doubled and more from West Coast because I did a very active reach out to professors and to young designers across the country. And I'm hoping next time to even reach more specifically into communities, but, but yeah, so stay tuned and check us out and come see the work that those designers are doing. And it's never too early to say, like, I know it's two years away, but I just love to ask you more about the program because it's certainly not for everybody. Uh, but it is, it is, uh, there's kind of nothing quite like it. Uh, and it's an amazing opportunity for somebody for two years to practice and work with a lot of really interesting people and, and figure out also how to work as a designer within an ensemble. So to not just, so I think where people struggle is that I think there are designers and this is great and I get it where you love actually, like what you love most about being a designer is like your studio life. It's such a wonderful thing. But what we're doing is saying what happens when you get out of the studio and it's not about like predetermined things, but you go into a room with these people. So, so if that is of any interest to people, let us know. Great. Excellent. Thanks. I think we'll stop there. Thank you. Perfect. That was my marathon talk with designer Lorenzo Savoini at the Soul Pepper Library in Toronto in May 2016. Next time, another Bellows episode where we'll talk about promotions and PR, not one you want to miss. The music for this podcast is by Vern Good with voiceover by Gabriel Cropley. Please go to iTunes and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theater design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at thetitleblockca and on facebook.com slash thetitleblockpodcast. You can send comments and requests by email to thetitleblock at gmail.com. Now, don't forget that if you like the show, please support us on patreon.com. Now, feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers, or listen to it while you glue little buttons on little stems over and over and over and over and over again. I'm Michael Cruz, and I'll see you next time on The Title Block. How do you pronounce your last name? Savoini. That's C?
I got it right. Oh, nice. A lot of people say Savoini, See, and I get it. I understand. Savoini. Right. Yeah. Or Savioni is the other kind of mistake because they flip the O and the I, right? And I, I'm always like, where'd you get the I from? Yeah, what exactly. Happened what yeah. happened there? Yeah, exactly. Savioni. When I used to score goals playing hockey, the announcement would come on. I'd say, goal scored by Lorenzo. And there'd be this pause. <laughs> and then they just say, S. <laughs> oh, no, you're kidding. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Yeah. 